Man, Jay, Colossus just cannot catch a break, can he? Oh, I know, Miles. You'd think dying would have been the low point, but... For an X-Man? Valid. But I really thought things were going to turn around for him when Magic came back. And instead, she tricked him into becoming the Juggernaut. I thought Kane Marco was the Juggernaut. Oh, well, he was busy being Kurt at the time. Kane Marco was Nightcrawler. No, no, not Kurt. Kurth. Two U's. Who's Kurth? Uh, he's this evil spirit associated with the serpent. Big Asgardian deal. Has a, has a fancy hammer. I'm surprised Colossus became the Juggernaut, though. I mean, he's a pretty gentle guy. He doesn't really seem like Sidorak's style. Sidorak's not actually all that picky. I mean, we're talking about a god who once decided his avatar should be... Charles Xavier's jerk stepbrother. The worst college professor ever. Charles Xavier. The living monolith. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 211 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the beating, bleeding, exploding heart of the early 1990s of the X-Universe. That's right, we are jumping into part two of our three-part coverage of... Executioner's Song. It always sounds so forced when we say it Executioner's Song, but it is indeed spelled that way. I mean, it's pretty forced in a lot of ways. That's true, but more on that later. Like, way later. For now, though, um, I know we just did the first part of the storyline, but kind of a lot's been going on, so should we recap a little? I do feel like we should at least do the, the highlights version, just because, again, this is sort of technically a three-parter. Well, in that case... Previously on Executioner's Song. At a pro-mutant human tolerance event in Central Park, Professor Xavier was shot, apparently by Cable. At the same time, Cyclops and Jean Grey were captured by Apocalypse's horsemen and brought to Apocalypse, who was actually Mr. Sinister in disguise, who then traded the captives to Strife for a mysterious capsule. No one's quite sure what Strife wants with Scott and Jean, but we do know that he called them father and mother. Maybe this has something to do with the plotline a while ago when they gave up a baby to a time traveler to save him from a virus. Nah, can't be. Well, as Charles Xavier lay dying of a techno-organic infection from Cable's bullet, the X-Men and X-Factor teamed up to go find Cable. Instead, they stumbled upon the rest of X-Force, who hadn't seen Cable since some explosions separated them in their own book, and captured those guys instead. Now, Mr. Sinister showed up to be all mysterious and scary and to tell the assembled heroes that Strife was the one behind all this, but that Apocalypse also kind of sort of was too, despite the fact that Apocalypse was apparently quite thoroughly dead. Apocalypse's cultists, discovering that someone was pretending to be their master, decided it was time to raise him up from his regenerative state in Egypt and let him know that someone had been framing him for some nefarious crimes. Meanwhile, Cable got back to the present day after being drunk in the future for a while and was very surprised to hear that he'd shot Xavier, because he totally hadn't. Which brings us to part two. These are the, the middle four issues of Executioner's Song, and like the first four, they are packaged with their own fancy trading cards, all labeled either Hunters or Prey. Who have we got this time? Well, in Chapter 5, we have Bishop and Wolverine, a pair of Hunters. Polaris and Havoc, who in this context are prey. 
In part seven, the Mutant Liberation Front, they're hunters. And Mr. Sinister is, surprisingly, prey. I like what they were going for here. The idea that Strife had, like, thought about the strengths and weaknesses and their, the roles of these characters and his grand plan. But I gotta say, given that Strife seems to be just focusing on one very specific thing and making the rest up as he goes along, I'm not so sure that this ever went through a second draft or any sort of edits. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. This is just Strife with his notebook having feelings. That's fair. I mean, I think we've all been there. That was certainly middle school for me. So, the... F- fifth issue of Executioner's Song is Uncanny X-Men number 295, titled Familiar Refrain. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Brandon Peterson, and inked by Terry Austin, and begins with the resurrection of Apocalypse. He is back on his feet, but he's still pretty shaky, so he does what any just resurrected demigod would do and heads home for a nap, only to find the gold team along with Quicksilver waiting for him. Now, remember, the X-Men figured that since the Horsemen kidnapped Scott and Jean, the Horsemen were probably going back to the apparently alive Apocalypse. That's why they're here. But I do want to point out that where here is, is Apocalypse's mountain chalet, his fucking ski lodge from X-Factor number 5 and 6. It's where he keeps his fashionable turtlenecks. It totally is. And this is such a weird era because so much of the early 90s seemed to be a war between some voices wanting to just tear down and ignore continuity and make the the next new hotness and people who really were all about continuity. And those are the people who are still around. Fabian Nicieza, Scott Lobdell, Peter David to a degree. These are people Mm, who remember Peter David much, much less than the others. Well, very possibly, but he was at least aware. But these are all people who remember things like the Ski Lodge of Apocalypse, little details that almost anyone would have forgotten unless they were, say, doing a podcast about it or read that era a whole lot. One of the great things about Executioner's Song that this scene kind of highlights is that if you change the tone just slightly, it would be a classic farce. We've got mistaken identities, secret twins, awkward encounters, all of these sort of near misses, and... It's ridiculous. Like, it it plays like a stage farce. Oh, man, it's like uh, that old sketch, Who's on 1992? No, no, I'm thinking more like Comedy of Errors style, but it's it it's got all of those elements, and it tries to be a very serious and dramatic com- comic, but because of that, there are moments of just acute silliness, most of which center around strife, and we'll get to those soon. Anyway, Apocalypse doesn't know what the hell the X-Men are talking about when they show up looking for Scott and Jean. He is very put out that they would believe Sinister over him, and he repowers using Celestial Tech and effectively takes the X-Men down. I should take this opportunity to slay them, to call the chaff from the wheat, but to slaughter an unconscious foe is so unseemly. Since when does Apocalypse talk like that, or care about that? It is a little weird. This does seem to be a bit of a plot contrivance. Uh, I think what Hub from Tighten Up the Defense would call the uh, just-gotta-be-a-sucka moment of the story. I mean, if Apocalypse killed all the X-Men, we'd have no more X-Men. So instead, he says that the strong can survive, and apparently these guys also, and he's gonna piece the fuck out of here. Yeah, what I'm guessing actually is that this is Apocalypse rationalizing because he mentions immediately after that that he's running very low on energy and this isn't going to be his big fight. So he teleports away to regroup and recharge. Now, we know that Scott and Jean aren't with Apocalypse. We already knew that. We know that they're somewhere with Strife, who has separated them and is now torturing Jean by forcing her to fight against a gauntlet of grabby metal arms, which is exceedingly creepy. This 
is. I mean, we find out what his motivation is in a minute, kind of, sort of. Kind of. What he's doing, like, he's got this whole thing where he sees Scott and Gene as mom and dad for reasons that we suspect are increasingly becoming obvious. And so he's trying to, you know, make them feel like abandoned babies. But this is just sort of like kind of kind of rapey. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It's just weird and creepy. The thing is, so so Executioner's Song, if you haven't figured it out yet, is Strife's angry revenge on everyone who was who he thinks was mean to him when he was a kid. And first of all. He doesn't explain this to anyone, and he wears full armor, so no one has any clue what the hell he's talking about when he goes on about this stuff. Second, if his goal is is to prove to Cyclops and Jean what it feels like to be an abandoned kid, I mean, one of them actually was? Yeah, that's true. Cyclops' childhood totally sucked. I'm, I'm not necessarily going to say it was worse than Strife's, because Strife had a pretty fucked up childhood, considering that he was basically raised as a backup body for Apocalypse, but it was up there. Like anything Strife does, even direct torture has, has a passive-aggressive element to it. A horrifying feeling, no? To be clutched and clawed by strange, unfeeling, uncaring, alien hands. Not at all unlike, I must assume, what an innocent babe feels when bereft of the love and warmth that is its birthright. Wow, so this is basically a weird wire mother situation? It totally is, man. Speaking of, um, anybody who's interested in psychology and comics, especially how the one can be uh, about the other, or the other can be about the one, I suppose. Uh, the co- oh, yeah. Yeah, the comic Wire Mothers, which is about some experiments that were done mm-hmm. on uh, monkeys that seem kind of unethical in retrospect, uh, really worth reading. Wire Mothers, Harry Harlow and the Science of Love. It's by Jim Ottaviani and Dylan McConus, who incidentally is the person who designed the amazing, amazing Emma Frost um, stuff that we debuted at, at uh, FlameCon. It's a small world after all. Anyway, this is this is undercut, you know, Strife Strife's attempts at, at symbolism by the fact that Jean clearly has no idea what is going on or what Strife is alluding to. Meanwhile, back at stately Xavier Manor, Psylocke is sitting vigil over the rapidly worsening Xavier and preparing to kill him if need be. She's uh, more into killing teammates than I think most of the X-Men. You remember that time that Havoc showed up and Psylocke was like, hey, Havoc, maybe we should just kill this guy. I, that was Storm, too. I know, but Psylocke was very enthusiastic about it. Psylocke's a little bloodthirsty, yeah. Well, anyway, speaking sort of of bloodthirsty, X-Force, you know, the former New Mutants, former allies of Cable who were captured by the other heroes' last arc, they're in the brig, which is actually the danger room, and all the other heroes are trying to figure out what the hell to do with them. Jubilee, looking on, is very unimpressed with these slightly older-than-her heroes. And I'll say it again, loser. You're nothing but a whining bunch of head-padded, hyperthyroided, pig-headed, spoiled brat, poorly-dressed, overly-accessorized, delusionally-disadvantaged X-Men wannabes in major need of a total attitude adjustment. It's fascinating to me here because Jubilee, I mean, she's an audience surrogate, uh, like Kitty Pride before her in a lot of ways, but at the same time, instead of being the young reader that a crossover like this was ostensibly targeted at, she sounds kind of like the people who'd been reading X-Men for a long time and were like, what the fuck happened to my new mutants? Well, think about when she came into the book. She's the person who impressed on X-Men during the Australia era. Oh, so she's uh, kind of me, huh? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, upstairs, Polaris is worrying that Havoc is kind of becoming the man after his actions in the last arc. 
They're kids, Alex. No older than we were when we started out. What happened? Life. Life happened. Damn, bro. Well, Alex has been through some shit. For that matter, so has Polaris. Arguably worse shit with the whole Zaladane thing. But there's no time to wallow because it's actually meeting time. Val Cooper takes the floor and briefs everyone on the intel they got from Sinister with regards to who might be responsible for both the attack on Professor X and the kidnapping of Scott and Jean. And spoilers, it's Strife. And so everybody's wondering, okay, Strife, what's his deal? All we know is that he runs the Mutant Liberation Front, he seems to hate Cable, and his fashion sense is horrifying. And he probably never gets to have balloon animals. Well, not for long, anyway. So everyone throws out their theories, and many of them are kind of serious, but I especially enjoy, first off, Jubilees. For all anybody knows, it could be Cable walking around with an ice bucket on his head. Interestingly enough, Jubilee's actually probably closer than anybody else. Strong Guy, meanwhile, suggests that maybe Strife is mad about the glove he lost in X-Factor number 78. Now, of course, of all of the teams, the ones who have the most experience with the MLF and Strife are X-Force. So, Havoc and Gambit? I'm not sure why Gambit's there, I guess just because he was really popular in the 90s. I assume he's, like, sleazy cop? <laughs> there we go, government cop, sleazy cop. Yeah. They both have those same head sock things. Maybe you have to wear those to be any sort of cop. Maybe they bonded over it and they just didn't want to be apart. They were just sort of doing the twins thing anytime someone walked into a room. That's actually amazingly charming. The idea of straight-laced Havoc and sleazebag Remy LeBeau being like best buds just over this one little thing and learning to put aside their differences and bond and like go to the carnival and get balloons together and make friendship bracelets for each other. I love this. And talk about how Strife can't have either of those things. Yes, that's right. Because he's pointy, and he has no friends. Oh. Also, if you tried to put a friendship bracelet on his wrist, it would probably just, like, get cut off by his various blades. And so would your fingers. Right. Oh, that's unfortunate. Strife's life is sad, but at least Havoc and Gambit are best friends canonically forever. So Havoc and Gambit take Cannonball aside and offer him a deal. Help the other teams find the MLF, and X-Force can help take Strife down as equal partners with the other teams. I do enjoy that before that, uh, Cannonball's first ask is a presidential pardon for everyone in X-Force. I enjoy that this is a Sam Guthrie who's led a team before, but now he's leading like a grown-up team, and he's not really sure, um, you know, how much or how little to ask for. So, so yeah, he asks for a full presidential pardon, and he manages to talk them down to, you know, equal partnership and a pony. And... That leaves two X-Men still unaccounted for. Those are Wolverine and Bishop. And Wolverine and Bishop are not around because they are busy on their own mission. They're breaking into Department K, hoping to use its resources to track down Cable, who, by remarkable coincidence, is also breaking into Department K so that he can use its resources to track down Strife. Department K, as a reminder, is the Canadian sort of spy governmenty agency that Weapon X spun out of, that Alpha Flight's based around, that Cable has some overlap with himself... But you can see where this is leading, right? In Cable's words... It's gonna be one of those days. And that brings us to X-Factor number 85, Snicks and Bones, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful title for this story. So, allegedly, this is the issue that convinced Peter David to leave X-Factor. Yeah, this is David's book. It's X-Factor, the comic he was writing. But right there on the cover are three characters... Cable, Wolverine, and Bishop, who have nothing to do with it, and that is indeed a large part of the contents of the book. I can understand him being a little annoyed. 
Yeah, David is pretty notoriously crossover runner friendly, and one of the things you'll notice if you read his later X Factor runs, um, they almost always exist and function outside of major crossovers and events, even when they're spinning off from them in pretty major ways, as as the second volume of X Factor does. Yeah, that was right out of House of M. And and he even here he's he's phoning it in pretty hard. The dialogue is really wooden for David. It is. That being said, even bad David is better than good some other people. So we have Peter David writing. We also, once again, like the last issue of X-Factor in this crossover, have Jay Lee on pencils. It's that same style we saw in that previous issue, that very dark, jagged, angry, exciting, violent style. It's really good and a great fit, especially for an issue like this one. Between Lee's pencils and Al Milgram's inks on this, I keep on sort of feeling like Dracula is about to show up, but he never does, and it's disappointing. That's a shame, because if there's one thing wrong with Executioner's song, is that it's that it doesn't have enough villains. So anyway, uh, we pick up in, in Department K, where Cable um, has just encountered Bishop and Wolverine, and they are engaged in a tense standoff as only three 90s muscular men with 90s muscular guns can be. It's pretty great. And Cable's like, hey, can I just like grab my files and leave? Is that cool? And of course that's not cool, because as far as Bishop and Wolverine know, this is the dude that shot and maybe killed Professor Xavier. And Bishop and Wolverine are two characters not exactly known for their restraint. Yeah, I gotta say, you know, we were talking about the art. I love the way Jay Lee draws Cable. He's, he's just, he's so craggy and gnarled. Oh, he is. He looks like he's been standing in, like, a rainstorm that was also sometimes a sandstorm for the last 60 years and just scowling at it the whole time. I mean, he is coming back from a future bender, but... True. I mean, Cable is hung over this entire arc, we should definitely remember. Yeah, they don't mention that, but it makes it so much worse if you remember it, because Cable's already living through this nightmarish scenario where he's being accused of murdering Professor Xavier, and to all appearances has, and is obviously being set up, and everyone's hunting him, and he's super fucking hungover. And everyone keeps making loud noises and the lights are too bright and he just wants to put a washcloth over his eyes. Okay, okay, so I know we were talking about this as a classic farce, but now I'm kind of imagining it as a Coen Brothers movie. That would be amazing. The Coen Brothers Executioner's song? I would be so into that. Uh-huh. Okay, the Coen Brothers, if you're listening, um, please get on that. If you have any questions, uh, just ask us or listen to this episode and the one before and the one after. Yes. We are in favor of this plan. I feel like, I feel like you know, while he is somewhat more violent than their standard, um, Cable actually fits the Coen Brothers protagonist profile pretty well. Totally does. Totally does. But there is a big goddamn fight, of course. And as dumb as it is, I mean, this is a whole, this is a whole fight based around a misunderstanding. Jay Lee makes it look fucking awesome. There are yelling faces and action line backgrounds and people charging at the at the camera, all silhouetted for no goddamn reason. It's really engaging. There's also one of the greatest lines of the event, possibly anything, that comes just after a cable bursts through a wall to find so many guns. Beautiful. The Armory. A cornucopia of mayhem. Thanksgiving with cable must be so weird. It's just one of those big, like, wicker horn things, just fucking full of ammunition. Yes. I bet the turkey's full of ammunition, too. Yes. Probably he blew up a lot of ovens cooking that turkey with the ammunition inside. But it's cable, you know, whatever. Everything is ammunition. There's ammunition sauce and mashed ammunition. Um, cable also apparently crosses a major etiquette line by referring to Bishop as kid as they fight. 
I am not kid. I am bishop. So this kind of reminds me of when I was a really awkward kid in summer camp one year. I was maybe like, I don't know, 11 years old or something. And one of the counselors uh, was playing Foursquare with everyone. And he uh, asked if I wanted to play. He's like, hey, bud, you want to play? And I had just seen Batman Returns. And you know how you like you internalize pop culture stuff and you don't actually know that it's a reference to something. You just know what it's what it's from when you heard it. So I just said, I'm not Bud. I am Miles. Hear me roar. Referencing Catwoman's I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. Referencing the famous quote, I am woman. Hear me roar. Um, Everyone just looked at me kind of funny and then roared at me for the rest of the summer and it was very embarrassing. Did you roar? No, no, I, I didn't. Why did you say hear me roar if you didn't roar? I mean, that's, see, that's the problem with referencing things you don't understand right there. Well, anyway, hopefully Bishop won't take nearly as much shit for that as I did. 18 pages, 18 pages into this fight, Cable finally tries to actually talk, and um, he says that they should just fucking kill him if they really believe that he would kill Professor Xavier. And in fact, Wolverine goes in for the kill, slashing his claws directly at Cable, and then snacking them in at the last second, just knocking Cable over. Because? I can't be 100% sure he's lying, but I have to be 100% sure. Because if I kill him, then he's 100% dead. Wolverine, you, you literally tried to kill one of your own teammates because she wanted to kill a supervillain once. Come the fuck on, buddy. Bishop, for his part, hates this plan because he was really excited that someone finally explicitly gave him permission to kill someone. Um, but he, he reluctantly agrees after Wolverine cuts apart his gun. So, yeah, no murder for Lucas Bishop. Not now, anyway. Meanwhile, in Strife's base, Cyclops is not having a better time of it than Jean. Well, okay, maybe like a slightly better time of it, but not a good time. Yeah, different nightmare scenario. He is being attacked from all directions and fighting in the dark. Um, but when the lights come on, it turns out that his attackers now subdued were Jean and a bunch of random children, which I assume must be robots? I don't know, but that's kind of weird. Like, was Strife just throwing the children at Cyclops? Kind of like those uh, mannequins get thrown onto the road if you go too far to the northwest in Silent Hill 2? Like, how did this work? How did Cyclops think he was being attacked? He's a smart, tactical dude. No, I assume he was being attacked, and these were just, like, murder bots. Oh, little child murder bots. Oh, or Look, you know what we it... know we know Arcade makes them. True, true. Maybe this has something to do with the strangely adult Genosian children from that recent uh, X-Factor story we covered. No, that seems unlikely. What what I think is that Strife drafted up his complicated revenge plans at, like, age 13 and has not altered them since. That seems reasonable. And speaking of detailed revenge plans, he's he's got another incomprehensible-to-anyone-but-him passive-aggressive speech for Cyclops. You're a born leader, Cyclops. Someone who always believes he knows just what to do. But sometimes you're operating completely in the dark. And sometimes, as you do these things, you wind up injuring the ones you love. Does that matter to you at all? I mean, Strife, you literally set up that situation. Does Strife sound like anyone we know? Anyone we tend to hear from at the end of episodes? Oh, see, I was gonna say that guy from Arrested Development, and that's why you always leave a note. But seriously, like, Strife is turning into the angry Claremontian narrator. I'm so proud of him. He's grown up, our little Strife. Kinda. Back in Switzerland, um, Apocalypse decides if he can't hang out in his safe house, he's gonna break into cables. And so he finds out 
that Cable's Scott technology derived from Apocalypse's own technology. And this is weird. Now, he initially came to the safe house because he'd heard that Cable had shot Xavier. He knew that someone was manipulating his horsemen. Something was going on there. And this is where Apocalypse starts to put it together, starts to realize that, wait a minute, X-Factor had celestial tech in the form of ship, but this guy has nothing to do with X-Factor, unless... Well, you never know. Watching Apocalypse figure stuff out is fun, because he is the guy who's supposed to be always one step ahead, and this is where we kind of realize that he's just kind of bumbling along. Well, it makes sense. I mean, Strife and Cable are time travelers. They know what's going on. Apocalypse is incredibly powerful and incredibly smart, but he just goes through time the normal way. He has not seen the future the way Cable and Strife have. He's figuring it out the way a normal person would have to. A normal, blue, fish-lipped, robot person. Also, he's not always the brightest blue crayon in the box. Well, that is very true. He just sort of talks a good game. Yeah, yeah, he, he put all of his points into charisma and not so many of them into wisdom. Back in New York City, because this story is taking us all over the place, the expatriates, remember them? The characters X-Factor were doing a lot of important stuff with before everything got hijacked by a crossover? Who? Right, you know, the Genosian refugees. Anyway, they chloroform the Madrox duplicate that's guarding them, and they take their nearly beaten-to-death compatriot Taylor and escape. And we're going to see more of them after Executioner's Song, but for now, they're out of the picture. It's so shoehorned in, too. It's it's basically David going, it's my book, you guys. Guys, it's my, my book. It's mine. It's mine. It's my book. Don't forget. And indeed, we shall not forget. But there's no time for things that actually have to do with the X-Factor ongoing plot lines, because it's time for a good old-fashioned mutant liberation front hunt. So much happens in these issues, and yet so little. That's the thing, like, people fly around really fast and get into fights, and the fights last a really long time, and they yell some things, and then they fly somewhere else and do it again. Basically that. And sure enough, Havoc and Storm and the newly reuniformed Cannonball are searching for likely Mutant Liberation Front headquarters sites. I love the way they're doing it. They're just showing up in towns, and Cannonball is just asking around real politely. And, and Havoc sort of rationalizes this. Being overt throws off people who are expecting covert. Wait, what? How the hell did you end up in charge of anything? That's a valid question. But sure enough, this time it works because this time the small towners that Cannonball's been directly asking about mutant terrorists turn into an armed mob. Not like pitchforks and torches, but lots and lots of guns. Um, reinforcements show up for the X-Men, and Havoc has the bright idea of just blasting the ground just in case there happens to be a hidden base underneath. I think it's like in Zelda where you just cut down like every single clump of grass because sometimes there are rupees or like a fairy or something. No, no, this is just like destroying infrastructure just in case. And I, I he's lucky it, it works. Sure enough, um, the, the MLF emerge along with a ton of troops who only ever really seem to show up in MLF stronghold scenes. They're basically red shirts, the MLF or the away team. Um, so this is this is the they, they've got a bunch of the, the peak MLF, too. And I got to say, Dragonus looks so cool here. She really does. Like, she has a damn sharp character design. She's no Fantasia, but still a very good female character design by Rob Liefeld. Credit where credit is due. And the fight goes on and on and on and on. And in the process of it, um, 
Archangel decapitates Kamikaze accidentally as he turns around uh, to Boom Boom's intense disgust. Reaper knocks out Gambit and Quilk and Quicksilver and is about to kill them. And in fact, the fight is so long it extends into the next issue, X-Men number 15, written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, and inked by Mark Pennington. And before we go back to the fight, I want to talk about the cover for a second, because almost all of these issues advertise the new Dragon Quest game in a little burst on the cover. But it's positioned really centrally on this one, so it looks like specifically Strife is, is torturing Scott and Jean by way of the new Dragon Quest game. Announcements inside. I mean, that makes about as much sense as any of his other plots, so I'm going to say, yes, he is. Uh, was it that bad? I never actually played it. If I recall correctly, it was one of those video games that had, like, a videotape, and you would put different parts on at different times, and I always wanted it, but, like, I didn't know where to find it, or it was too expensive or something. I don't know. Like Fistful of Bullets. What? From Community. Oh, yes, exactly like that, in fact. Yes. Anyway... X-Factor, X-Force, and the X-Men managed to take down the rest of the MLF, but not before Skids breaks Boom Boom's jaw with a well-placed kick and Rusty goes full cultist. Remember these guys? These were our friends from X-Factor, and they went off to join the MLF somewhat cynically, but it seems like Rusty has, has, has really gone over the deep end here as he declares... Strife is our master. His is the way of tomorrow. Only through pain and fire, hardship and death will order one day come. Okay, Rusty. Man, this pisses me off because we will find out later that they were, in fact, brainwashed by Strife. I don't like that. Like, I like the idea of them just getting so annoyed with what had been going on with Headmaster Magneto and X-Factor and Cable that they're like, fuck this. We're just going to go with the Mutant Liberation Front. They actually have our best interests at heart. This really cheapens that. It, it just makes them less interesting characters. And especially for Rusty, they could not afford that. At this point, X-Force has been fighting the MLF for years. Everyone else has been scrapping with them occasionally. And with all three teams together, they just wiped them out immediately. Even even the characters comment on it. Yeah, it's a nice little bit of ex-camaraderie, and for me, that's a big part of what makes these crossovers so satisfying. Getting to see all these heroes team up against a big common foe, even though they'd been bickering and fighting each other for a long time before that. Strife is taking a key from Magneto's playbook and torturing Scott and Jean by force-feeding them baby formula, because I guess that creepy supervillain trope isn't played out yet. Why do people keep doing this? I don't know, and Strife clearly doesn't get it either. This is, in fact, the second time that someone has done this in space. Very true. What the fuck? Is that how it's done? Is that how you nurse a child? Is it? says Strife, as he puts sort of like porridge on his big metal gloves and s jams it into Cyclops' mouth. No, Strife, that is not how you nurse a child, not even remotely. Man, Strife is, Strife is just not good at parenting or a lot of other things. And then he leaves with the most petulant flounce line ever. If I can easily understand what it requires to wean a child, so should you. Until next time. And with that, he heads off to fight Apocalypse, leaving Scott and Jean to wonder what the ever-loving fuck that was about. And hilariously, Strife's approach to Apocalypse is basically the exact same. He shows up and he yells, Come out, Time Walker. Come to me now. Uncertain, unknowing, weak, childlike. Come to me as I came to you. A babe with need for succor. Strife, for fuck's sake. 
But the thing is, the really great thing is that Apocalypse responds in the most hilarious possible way. New body, who dis? I mean, he doesn't technically say that, but he he does basically go, who are you? Because that's the thing. No one recognizes Strife in the fucking armor. Well, and even if they did, nobody knows what the shit he's talking about. Right, he's from the future and he just sort of assumes that everyone else must be too or something. I don't know, Strife is amazing and he's hilarious and terrible. God, and yeah, so so he's he's there to fight Apocalypse. I, again, this is a fight that crosses two issues. I guess it doesn't. There's a confrontation and then the fight begins properly in X-Force number 17, sleeping with the enemy in which no one sleeps with their enemies. That we know of. I mean, who knows what's going on off panel? I bet Tumblr does, or maybe DeviantArt, or an archive of our own. Isles. Well, anyway, this is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Greg Capullo, and inked by Harry Candelario. And sure enough, we are getting a villain versus villain fight, and it is kind of awesome. I mean, it's kind of awesome, and Strife is still yelling at Apocalypse about babies. How long has it been since you cried a babe's tears of need? How long has it been since you longed for the gentle warmth of a mother's touch? Do you want to know how long it's been for me? It has been forever! A forever solitude brought on by you, father of pain, son of the morning fire! So you know what's really fun to do when you're reading this? Just replace all of Strife's dialogue with things like, You're not my real dad, and I didn't ask to be cloned. I mean, seriously, not everything is about you, Strife. Right? Ray has gone bye-bye, Egon. But I I love this. Like, okay, this is silly, we're making fun of it, but the idea of someone with that much power, because Strife is kicking the living shit out of Apocalypse. Like, Apocalypse, the most powerful villain the X-Men have arguably ever faced, Strife is just demolishing him. I mean, he's weak, but still, Apocalypse, that is. But the idea of a villain with that much power and that little grip on reality who's just unable to read the room in a grand enough sense to confuse the shit out of everybody that he's torturing and destroying? He might be better at the room if his helmet allowed for peripheral vision. Very good point. Still, it's actually very effective. And so I don't want our gentle ribbing to uh, detract from the fact that this is actually really good writing and I think Nicieza especially kills it in this issue. Yeah, it's it's a fun issue. It's a fun, I mean, it's a fun event in general, and it's one that has a lot of drama. The drama is undercut for me a little bit by the setup, but much, much more by just the length of the fight scenes and the pace of them. Like, it's just, actually, no, you know what? It, it, it feels like kids and action figures, so I will give it that, but it just, weirdly, there's so much action that it drags. Yeah, I would I would agree. Like, I think this crossover could work well pared down to maybe like a nine part like Extinction Agenda was. Yeah, 12 is 12 is just too many. Um, but Strife tries his best to end it sooner by stabbing Apocalypse with um, the sword that that the MLF had stolen in Cable Blood and Metal. It's a sword with a little tiny bust of Apocalypse on it, which is a really funny thing to stab Apocalypse with visually. I'm just saying, if I was like a megalomaniacal god with a vision of sort of cosmic mutant eugenics, I would have my followers put my face on everything. That would feel really good. I'd smile every time I looked at them. Everything? 
everything. I should say, in, instead of doing what he did with Scott and Jean and just keeping his helmet on and yelling passive-aggressive stuff, Strife realizes when he's fighting Apocalypse that maybe this would be more effective if Apocalypse knew who the hell he was. So he does take his helmet off. And Apocalypse, to my surprise, is absolutely floored to see Cable or Strife's face. Yeah, he doesn't realize they're separate people. He thought that Cable must have been Nathan Christopher, the son of Scott and Maddie, sent into the future at the end of X-Factor Endgame. So to see that face under Strife's armor, he's like, wait a minute, I was just starting to get the hang of this, and now all of a sudden it's all confusing. Oh, and by the way, you are stabbing me with a sword with my face on it. And he mentions that he used that sword to kill Strife slash Cable at one point. That's a plot thread that could have been something cool. It's totally dropped. I don't think it ever goes anywhere. He might just have been talking trash. He might have. So Apocalypse does manage to escape with his life by crawling to one of the teleporters around here, barely, and that leaves Strife the victor, and in the eyes of the Dark Riders who come up to see what's happened, that leaves Strife as the strongest, and the Dark Riders are good followers, followers of Apocalypse. They believe that the strong should rule, and Strife's the strongest, so now Strife's got himself some new henchmen, which is handy because his old henchmen totally got their asses kicked. Speaking of ass-kicking, let's check in with Cable, Wolverine, and Bishop. They were in the um, Department K headquarters. They have since teleported up to Greymalkin, Cable's satellite orbiting Earth, where Wolverine, because he is a maker of very bad decisions, decides that it's going to be a running joke that he tries to smoke and then complains when Greymalkin puts out his cigars. And I just... Smoking in a state in a space station is the worst fucking idea. This is not the professor or Gray Malkin being unfair or being uptight, you know, in ways that modern astronauts would never be just because in the future no one smokes. Like you are in an oxygen rich, but oxygen limited enclosed environment. Do you want to Apollo one? Because this is how you Apollo one. I mean, Wolverine would probably be fine. Just uh, nobody else. I don't know if he could have survived exploding in space and then burning up in re-entry at this point. This was this was before he was he was quite as as unkillable as he is these days. Well, we'll get to that Morrison scene eventually. So they're all talking to each other about what's going on, and Bishop's trying to get some information about who the hell Strife is. Which which leads Cable to give a really arcane and kind of useless explanation. More than a terrorist, Bishop. More a force for anarchy. Born and bred for chaos, but desperately trying to find a sense of order. Yeah, so here's the thing, Cable. The Will Graham School of Criminal Psychology doesn't actually work. It does sound pretty cool, though. And so Cable realizes that poetry ain't cutting it, and he has Professor explain a little bit about what's up. And we learn some about Cable and Strife's backstories here. So what we learn hinges largely on the since-dropped plot point that Cannonball was an external. Um, so in, in the future that Cable and Strife came from, Cable is the leader of a group of rebels, clan chosen. Those guys are going to be a big deal in Cable's solo series, but we can kind of gloss them here, except that they are fighting against the ruling High Lords of New Canaan. So what's, what's their deal? So basically, they're a group affiliated with Apocalypse, and if the 
term high lords sounds familiar, it should. That's another term for the externals, what Apocalypse supposedly was. And so Strife's goal in coming back to the present was apparently to prevent to have a bunch of mutants rebel to prevent the ascension of the next high lord presumably cannonball and cable came back in time to instead control the ascension of that high lord to have more order and less chaos so cannonball is basically the center of this entire cross time fight until all of the writers collectively decide that maybe they should never talk about it again this will essentially be retconned basically to cable came back in time to to stop apocalypse strife came back in time to be a dick Essentially that. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I actually really enjoy all of these dropped plot lines and seeing what was done with them. Because the fact is, if you have a plot that's not working, kind of like the original premise for X Factor, then just shift it. Make it a plot that will work because this is the continuity you're going to be stuck with. Might as well alter it. Well, X Factor actually managed to use the shifting of its premise as a major, major sort of vertex of story. This stuff is just going to get quietly forgotten. There is that. But what we can't forget is Strife's base, where Scott and Jean, more and more and more confused and disturbed, finally have a chance they've been waiting for. Yeah, Strife leaves and they immediately make a break for it. And the first thing that they discover when they run is that what they assumed was a power dampening field, um, keeping them from using their powers, was actually Strife's telekinesis. He is that powerful. And so they hold hands and they run off into an uncertain future. And goddamn, it is heartwarming seeing them do this every time. It's especially resonant if you've read ahead and so know where they are. That it is. But we should probably check in before we finish with the X-Mansion and with Professor Xavier, poor Chuck, still comatose, gradually being consumed by a techno-organic virus. On the... Dubious upside, he does have coma buddies now. Quicksilver and Gambit are both unconscious and unrousable after the MLF fight. Um, Rogue has been temporary, temporarily blinded, and Boom Boom's jaw is broken, complete with weird hardware like Polaris, because no one in comics knows how that stuff actually works. I feel like broken jaws are the 90s X-Men equivalent of getting your hand cut off in Star Wars. It's surprisingly common. Or losing arms in the DCU. Yeah, what's up with that? That's also surprisingly common. Well, anyway, Cannonball heads over to the Danger Room temporary jail to talk to his increasingly restless teammates, X-Force, and finds that Wolfsbane is already there. She's talking to especially the recent X-Force converts, Richter and Sunspot, talking about how they're really just on different sides of the bars due to circumstance, and this really works for me, because Wolfsbane has so much history with basically everybody in X-Force, except for the people that showed up at the very end of New Mutants, and so just seeing that pain, realizing that they're on different sides, that she's not on the team she wants to be, but she's on the team she has to be because of her genetic bond with Havoc, it's just, it's that soap opera longing that really fucking works for me, and that really recalls old New Mutants for me. And I really like these conversations because they're really they're really good windows into the ways that the characters have grown individually and relative to one another. Especially somebody we haven't seen much of in a long time, Sunspot. I left the New Mutants when my father died, Rain. But I was duped by a man named Gideon, much as our friends have been by Cable. So for a change, I won't be casting any aspersions on anyone. Aw, oh, Bobby, I missed him so much. 
And Siren is also having a rough time with Jamie Madrox, who's here too, not being her Jamie Madrox because it was just a dupe back in Fallen Angels. We were just getting callback after callback to all of this character growth, and this is why I love long-running continuity. This is also why I love big crossovers. Because on one hand, they're sprawling and unwieldy, and on the other hand, you get stuff like this, and you get stuff like everyone finally coming together again during Inferno, and... While the events are a mess and they definitely, you know, they're definitely something I can mostly do without, I love those moments. I love those band getting back together scenes. But before the band can get too far together, they have a new performer because Apocalypse teleports right the fuck in. Now, Archangel appropriately immediately tries to kill Apocalypse. Apocalypse, of course, effortlessly deflects. But he's he's very excited that that Warren is so so bloodthirsty because they're gonna be teaming up. You do not understand, my glorious child, my bird of prey. I did not come here to fight you. I came, as I said, to end this game, and that means defeating the madman who hurt us all. And the only hope there is of accomplishing that is for us to battle strife together! Apocalypse has joined the party. Okay, that's... That's just fucking awesome. I don't have any commentary beyond that. That is just fucking awesome. We're heading into the end game here. We've got Apocalypse teaming up with the X-Men to take on strife. We've got all of the teams finally reconverging. We've got Cable in space with, with Wolverine and Bishop actually putting together what has happened this is a this is a cool second act closer i gotta say it totally is and i gotta say that what's also cool is our listeners and the questions they have for us all right and we actually put out a special call for executioner song questions so we've got a couple of those on deck today an anonymous listener asks on tumblr is strife a summers Depends on how you define it. Genetically, he is identical to Cable, who is the biological son of Scott Summers, so yes along that vector. He is not a Summers by name. As far as I know, in fact, Strife doesn't have a civilian name. Um, And he's not a Summers in that he has no familial relationship to anyone in the Summers family beyond the ones that he resents not having had. So, So basically, he's a Summers in terms of organ transplants, but not family reunions. Ah, exactly. But yeah, we're getting to some real nature-nurture stuff here, which I enjoy. Like, Cable and Strife are identical genetically, and as far as their infant upbringing, but Cable was raised by Slim and Red, as we'll see a little bit later in the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries, and Strife was raised mostly by Apocalypse. Now, I'm personally a big fan of Chosen Family, not Clan Chosen Family, that's, that's different. And I think that's more important than Blood, So I would say that Cable totally is a Summers in basically every respect, and Strife isn't, not to say he couldn't have been, but he very thoroughly burned any of those bridges for any sort of family chosen or otherwise. Christo Jorg asks on Tumblr, What is the Executioner's song? That is to say, what jams does Strife listen to in his downtime, and when he shows up for karaoke night, what tunes is he prepared to belt out? 
The Executioner's Song, 1979, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Norman Mailer that depicts the events related to the execution of Gary Gilmore for murder by the state of Utah. The title of the book may be a play on The Lord High Executioner's Song from Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado. The Executioner's Song is also the title of a poem by Mailer, published in Fuck You magazine in September 1964 and reprinted in Cannibals and Christians, 1966, and the title of one of the chapters of his 1974 novel, The Fight. Thanks, Wikipedia. Okay, but but which song is it? Like, what what does Strife have on his earbuds under his big helmet? Okay, so here's what most people don't know, Wikipedia included. The Executioner's Song was an early demo-era Metallica song from back when Dave Mustaine was the band's lead guitarist and before he got fired and started Megadeth. But Mustaine's replacement, Kirk Hammett, thought the hook wasn't complex enough, and so it never made it onto an album and was never played live. All right, I made that up, but that sounds plausible, right? Oh god, I bet he's one of those assholes who insists Metallica sold out with the Black Album. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there have been fans who have insisted that Metallica has sold out with literally any of their albums. By recording, I mean really hardcore bands don't even exist. <laughs> right. Okay, what about the karaoke part? Oh, I've got this one. The answer to what does Strife sing at karaoke is unquestionably Total Eclipse of the Heart. God, that's easy to picture. But I would also go for maybe The End by The Doors. It's way too long and rambling and angry and Oedipal, so perfect for him. He wouldn't because it's not his style, but I'd like to think that he's the kind of person who chooses Shine On You Crazy Diamond at karaoke, which it's in every book, and it makes me so angry because that song is like 15 minutes long, and it has a verse and a half. And it's a great song, but it's a largely instrumental great song, and there is no reason to ever, ever select it at a karaoke bar. But I don't think I don't think he would. Um, so actually, just forget everything I just said. Never mind. Well, based on Strife's outfit, um, it's probably "Death to All But Metal" by Steel Panther on their album "Feel the Steel." Does Steel Panther appear at many karaoke bars? I mean, I realize that you are in Portland, where the karaoke scene is is both quirky and intense, but um, that that's not a name I recall having stumbled across. Eh, they're probably a baby cat'n. So that's what we have for you today in terms of content and in terms of questions. But what you often have for us is the financial support that lets us do this show. And certain levels of support come with acknowledgement on air from various fictional characters and concepts. Angry Claremontian narrator, what you got? Sean Blakely. Look at you. Accused of crimes you didn't commit. On the run with scarcely even your own orbital satellite. And now forced to team up with the same man who's been hunting you for all of these years, Pierce Lydon. What fools circumstance makes of us all. And uh, speaking of fools, the mic here goes to Apocalypse. You would not believe the day Apocalypse has had. Though I slumbered within the celestial womb that denies death's final embrace, Becca's star eyes awakened me with tales of horsemen led astray. Damn it, Becca! Apocalypse was really tired! And just as Apocalypse was about to drift off to regenerate anew, David Britton started poking me and rambling about babies! Away with your petty confusion, David! Before you and Becca screwed it up, Apocalypse was having a really great dream! 
And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode, and thank you so much to everyone who turned out to see us at FlameCon. That episode we're holding on to a little bit longer just so we can wrap up the Executioner song, but it'll be on the air after we've finished this event. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, basically just everyone fights nonstop. As Executioner's Song concludes. 